Welcome to My Life, Chassidah Supplied, episode 436. This uh, program is dedicated in merit of Baruch bin Yamin, Ben Menucha Lana, and Miriam Baschayis Sar Altais, Yukusil Ben Leir Rochel, and Rochel Bas Liba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Tadras, Ben Miriam, and Sarah Bas Rochel Altais. Being that uh, tonight, tomorrow is Tu Bishvat, or Chamisha Osir Bishvat, and we'll soon discuss those names. We'll begin with that. We'll also speak about this week's Parshas, Parsha Yusei Matan a major event, perhaps the greatest event in all of history, as well as some other interesting topics that I think you'll find uh, quite fascinating. We'll also do some follow-up, and... Uh, Try to plow through, and I want to thank you again, everybody, for all the questions that you continue to submit. Frankly, it's beautiful, but overwhelming, because I simply can't keep up with the pace. Many more questions come in than I can actually cover, and I've been thinking <laughs> some type of Solomon wisdom of how to figure out what can be done about that. So if you have any ideas, I'd be happy to hear them. I was thinking of doing sometimes a double program or doing more than one, but I don't want to... This is a scheduled program every week. I like to keep to that uh, order. So, But there are many backup questions. I do intend to address them all. I try to bunch them together at times based on the topic, based on the time, based on the week. So please, if your question has not been answered yet, don't uh, in any way feel feel uh, singled out. It's simply due to the volume. So chassidusapply.com is the location where you can submit any question anonymously, confidentially. Any question, nothing is taboo, as is our tagline. We welcome all questions, and I will try to the best of my ability to answer it according to the maimorim and the sikhs and the letters and the yechidus and of chassidus from all the rabbeim, especially the rebbe. Okay, and with that, let us go into Hamisha Osar Bishvat. So, let's start with this first question, the name. Some people call it Tu Bishvat, some people call it Hamisha Osar Bishvat. There are many different thoughts about the Rebbe. But the Rebbe, what did the Rebbe call it? So indeed, I can be witness, and you can hear it on tapes. The Rebbe generally, generally referred to it as Hamisha Osar Bishvat, uh, which is the name as it was Mkubal Muskabal over the generations. However, there is a letter from the Rebbe in Tovshin Chavtes, 1969, to Rav Zalman Yaffe from Manchester, where he does write in English to Bishvat. So clearly it's not uh, etched in stone. So someone asked the question, did the Rebbe explain the reason we should be careful to refer to the New Year of Trees as Chamishas Bishvat instead of Tu Bishvat? Well, the Rebbe himself uses the name Tu Bishvat there, uses that term. I think it's the only time we found. We do have a story in the Yechidus where somebody said to the Rebbe, not about Chamisha Asher B'Shav, but Chamisha Asher B'Av. He said his birthday was connected to Chamisha Asher. He's kept the two B'Av. And the Rebbe asked him several times, what date? Until he finally said, Chamisha Asher B'Menachem Av. But he wasn't sure whether it was the Chamisha Asher or the Menachem. But let's assume that it's Chamisha Asher B'Av. Uh, but there we know it regarding Chamisha Asher B'Av, if indeed... We understand the Rebbe emphasizing Hamish Asa. There too, the Rebbe used Hamish Asa Bav, not Tuba of. So I've never heard any reason Tu is wrong. Is it more slangish? 
Two is Tezvav, as you say, two. Instead of saying Tezvav Ba'av or Tezvav B'Shvat, as, as I said, I've never heard anything. If anyone has more information, I'd be happy to share it on the next program or programs. So please let me know if you know anything more about that. Regarding the very message of the day, what are the main lessons of this day? So there are many, many, as the, the Mishnah Rosh Hashanah says, that there are four different types of Rosh Hashanah. The Rosh Hashanah that we're most familiar with is, of course, Rosh Hashanah Tishrei, the first of Tishrei. Rosh Hashanah is in terms of Yem Adin, the day when Adam and Eve, the human race, were born and created. So it has all that significance, the most important Rosh Hashanah. We as Chassidim also have a Rosh Hashanah, a fifth Rosh Hashanah, as some of the non-Chassidim put it, adding another Rosh Hashanah, a Rosh Hashanah Chassidus, on Yutas Kislev. But you can wonder, why is it relevant to us, Rosh Hashanah of the trees? It's true, it's the new season, the beginning, the different opinions between Shammai and Hillel, Shammai and Beis Hillel, whether it's Rishchei Shvat or whether it's Chamisha Asr B'Shvat, whether it's the first of Shvat, when it begins to, the, the Bekoyach, it begins to, begins to bud, or Chamisha Asr B'Shvat, when you start seeing it in actuality. But regardless, why is that relevant to us? That's something part of God invested and God infused the beginning of the season of the trees. And the classic answer is based on the Pasuk, even though the very verse itself can be interpreted literally in a different way, but it's very often interpreted that a person is like the tree in the field. We're compared to a tree. So just like everything that Baal says, everything that a person sees or hears is a lesson in serving God. So of course the things that are most obvious, when you see creation, God created Minat Semeach, in the world of vegetation, the idea of an eight, a tree, we can learn many lessons from it. A few of the lessons. Firstly, as actually in the letter to Rabbi Zalman Yaffa, the Rebbe writes, that growing, a tree is always growing. Semeach, that's its meaning, growth. So its first lesson is that we always have to be growing in matters of spirituality, of godliness, of kedusha, of teira, mitzvahs. Constant growth. A tree also branches out and if it's a fruit tree, as the trees that are connected to the Chamisha Sebeshat are, then it also bears fruits. Pri, pri. Fruits create perpetuation. In other words, it's not just about growing, it's also about impacting, influencing. We say often on uh, students, we call them tail de seyem. My paid in mitzvahs, the Gemara says. What are fruits? Mitzvahs. So the mitzvahs we do are like fruits. They produce. And peris, by their very nature, create more peris. Ad infinitum. So the point is that a person in their life shouldn't just grow. Well, I shouldn't say it shouldn't just. That itself is a great thing. But growth has to also include influence, inspiration. When you bear fruit, and the fruit will bear fruit. Like tell this, children will bear children. Your good deeds will bear good deeds. A type of good deed, breeding good deeds. A ripple effect, a butterfly effect. That's lesson number two, growth and fruits. A tree is also made up, as the Rebbe explains in some letters, of a tree trunk. That's the solid foundation. There's the roots beneath the tree. And there's the tree branching out, the leaves, 
and the fruits. So on one hand, the tree needs deep roots. We're always connected to those that came before us. At the same time, it's not just about being connected to the past, it's also blossoming, spreading out, spreading your wings, growing, and bearing fruits. And the deeper the roots, the better the fruits. So a tree grows, as they say, in both directions. At the same time, it grows downward through the roots, which connect themselves to water, to always know where the sustenance comes from. We're connected to Emayim Elotera, which in turn feeds the roots, which in turn feeds and grows the tree. At the same time, we also blossom outward and upward. And many, many other lessons from Hamisha Asabashat. There are sikhs where the Rebbe speaks about the seven species, the minim, shiva minim, shenishtabchem behem eretz Yisrael, that describe the praise of Israel and how each one of the fruits has its lessons. We did that in previous years, and you can find those archives as well at chassidahsupply.com. Find the previous years where we discussed Hamisha Asher Bishvat. It's also interesting, is the 15th of the month, which is the full moon. So even though the trees are connected to the seasons, and seasons are governed and regulated by the sun, but as we know, certain things grow from, through the moon. And yet at the same time, the moon has another message, the message of full moon which is on one hand, it's the moon, the recipient, but Malchus in Chassidish language, but at the same time, it's completely aglow, reflecting the full sun. So it's the Yuchud Shimsha Vesira, the union of sun and moon, the union of Mashpia Mekabel, which perhaps you can also say is the very essence of what a tree is. It's Mekabel from the roots, and then it's Mashpia. So we need roots to receive from, and then to spread out and bear fruit and fruit that will continue to perpetuate and perpetually bear fruit is mashpia. And we need both all the time. With that, let us go to uh, Parsha Yisrei. This week is also Parsha Yisrei. The Parsha Matan Teda. And it's interesting when you look in Sefer Shmois, what you see is really a very orderly progression that is a direct lesson to each one in our lives. Talk about Chassidus Applied. It begins with Golas Mitzrayim. The Jews have come down to Egypt and Sefer Shemais begins where they are enslaved by the Egyptians. They come out of Mitzrayim, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the first major event, they become a nation. They're the birth of a nation. And a nation with that would be indestructible. As the morale says now, they assumed freedom, achieved freedom, that they no longer can be enslaved, not physically and not spiritually, not psychologically or emotionally. You are my servants, God's servants, ambassadors of God, not the servants of other men or of man-made things. That's followed by the parting of the sea, which in turn is followed by last week's Pasha, followed by Yisrael, Pasha Yisrael, the mandate that God gives, the life operator man, operator's manual, the blueprint to the Jewish people now, by which they shall illuminate and transform the world. And then, in the next chapters, till the conclusion of this book of Exodus, of Shemais. And as I was pointed out, Exodus is like the name of the Ramban for the Sefer. Sefer Gula, Book of Redemption, is about the Mishkan, the building of a sanctuary, 
which is essentially consummating that which happened at Matan Teda, to actually turn it into a physical sanctuary in this world where God resides. And this Mishkan would become the basis of the mitzvah of building a Beis Amigdash, later the first temple, the second temple, and ultimately the third temple, which will be the permanent one, and the permanent presence of God in this world, like we just learned Basilagani, connection with Yushvat, right in the beginning, Veshachanti Besecha. Basilagani doesn't say Lagan, it doesn't say Lignuni, Lagani Lignuni, to my bridal chamber. Why? Because Chiem Chasanos is Ematanter. Ematanter is a Chasana between heaven and earth, between God and the people. And the Mishkan is the place where, the, where they join together. A word yud, meaning intimacy, a connection, the bridal chamber. And from there it extends to the rest of the world. So in a sense, the progression is a very straightforward one when you think about it, when you apply it to our lives. But one, the first thing is you have to get out of all your limitations and constraints. Mitzrayim from the word Mitzrayim v'gvulim. Everybody has their different inhibitions and fears and insecurities and traumas and pollutants that distract us, to put it mildly, sometimes much worse than that. And if you don't get out of your Mitzrayim, your internal blockages, whatever it is that's blocking you, it's very hard to expand yourself and become the best person you can be and to fulfill your calling in this world because you're so occupied with fighting darkness and fighting your demons. So Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim is the first step. You have to get out of your Mitzrayim in every form of it, whether it's the decadence of ever sa'aras that a person may be involved in or whatever form of constraint, of narrowness, the word again, Mitzrayim, constraints, limits, the things that block us from really being, again, growing and expanding ourselves and spreading your wings, that's the first step. The next step is Matan The truth is, I should mention Kriyas Yamsuf, which, as Chassidus explains, is the bridge between water and land, bridging our superconscious with our conscious, our thoughts and our speech. So we start creating a bridge. But you can't create a bridge if you don't first get, get rid of the limitations that are blocking you. A person who's cowering in fear that doesn't mean necessarily in a very literal sense, but emotionally, is afraid, is emotionally lives in an insecurity, doesn't feel trust, doesn't feel nurturing and love, doesn't feel validated, it's going to be very difficult for them to bridge their inner and their outer. So Chris Samson is bridging. But then the real bridge happens at Matan As Medrash tells us, as the Medrash tells us, cited in Chassidus and the Rebbe very often, that before Matan there was a gzeda, literally a decree and also a schism. Zeta from the word like a split, a dissonance between heaven and earth. That which was above didn't come down below. That which was below did not go up above. Meaning spirit and matter did not really join. Only temporarily, but not in the fullest sense of the word. To integrate and transform material world that a chefza, the mundane world, can become a chefza shagdusha. Which means saturated with holiness, a holy object. And not just Holiness travels through it, but it becomes holy, sanctified. That's what Matan Teda accomplished. The Bitla Hagzeda of Alienim Yordu Lemato and Tachtenim Yalu Lemailo. Vayyedet Hashem al God came down on Masayne and Moses went up. And that's the significance. God had to come down. God is Molekol Kvede, fills all of existence. But the principle here is coming down, but more than that, that godliness can penetrate and permeate existence. 
as it was in the beginning of creation, but then due to the chatoim, the transgressions, the dissonance that they created, they, the divine was concealed until Avram retraced, reversed this, the process. And Moshe, the seventh generation, concluded it first with Matan Teda, and then comes step number three. I'm counting Kriyas Yamsuf together with Yitzhiz Mitzrayim. Step number three is actually taking gold, silver, copper, Vayikhali Truma, Kesav, Zov, and Necheshes, silver, gold, copper, and all the other materials, and building a temple, building a sanctuary, building the Asli Migdash, for what? Veshachanti Besecham. So what was empowered to us by Matan Teda is consummated in the Mishkan. And Beshechanti Beseicham, not just in the structure, Beseich Kol Echad Va'achas, within the heart and soul and spirit and psyche of every individual. And that's the seamless connection, that's the purpose of existence. So in Sefer Shmeis, you actually have laid out the blueprint. Get out of your inhibitions, your fears, your blocks. Receive the mandate that connects heaven and earth, that gives us the power to connect heaven and earth, and then connect heaven and earth. Beshechanti Beseicham. And the rest is commentary, so to speak. What does that mean? Not that the rest is commentary. Obviously, Chumash still continues, Sefer Vayikra, Bamid, Bedvar, but what's Sefer Vayikra? It's all about what happened the day that they, they, they erected and they established the Mishkan. All the service. And until Pasha Baaleschot continues all that, the whole book of Vayikra, till Baaleschot, is all about what happened in that Rishchidosh Nisan, that period in time, when and the days that followed, that they established and they dedicated the temple and all the laws of, of the Karbonus, which is from the word Kiruv, as he explains in Basiligani, the Karbonus is to, is to get close to and connect and integrate again existence with the divine. And then the journey continues in Baalescha as they continue through the wilderness the, to the promised land, and it concludes at the end of Bamidbar, and Dvarim is a review of everything. So really the story of, of life is in Sefer Shmais, and the rest obviously elaborates on the details of it. But as they traveled through the wilderness, what was their centerpiece? Was the Mishkan. Every place they came to, they, had, they established the Mishkan and served in it. And that led their way, the Odin led them, by Ibn Sayyid Odin led their way through this dark wilderness, which is again the lesson to us, that once you have these three things, Yitzhiz Mitzrayim and Elamaseh, these are the journeys of Mitzrayim because Mitzrayim is a permanent thing. It's a perpetual thing. We're always going out of those limitations. And we have the Tater going along with us, which is in the Arun, and Moshe leading the way, and establishing the Mishkan that can allow us to transform the wilderness of existence into a divine home. That's the story. But it's these three events. From Pasha Yisri comes event number two, which is Matan Tater. That's the first lesson we can learn from it. Chassidus asked the question, Zoya asked the question, why is it in Pasha Yisrael? And the name of the chapter, you would think the central event is Matan Teri. Yisrael seems to be a secondary. Yisrael, Yisrael heard about it, so he came. And it's true that he gave Moshe advice and he's Moshe's father-in-law. But why does that seem to like be the prominent name of the Pasha and the events that happened before Matan Teri? So the Zayar explains, because Yisrael comes from the word Yeser, and Yisrael, he added, Yisrael min Remember, Yisrael was a, was a wizard, was a philosopher, was a sorcerer, was a person who knew all the wisdoms of the world, and now he came to recognize, even though I know all the wisdoms, now I know 
that your God your God, the God that took you out of Egypt, the God that is now going to give you the Torah, is greater than all the gods out there, all the so-called valuable spiritual entities. Not gods as an idolatry, it includes that as well. But meaning this is the real God. Why do we need Yisrael to acknowledge it? Because there's something when it comes from the darkness itself, from the world itself, that prepares the world to receive godliness. If it came from Moshe Rabbeinu or from another tzaddik, my Kamashman, what's the Chiddush? But when the world itself acknowledges, and Yisrael was like a man of the world, a leader of the world, and recognized as such, when he acknowledges it, that means the world is receptive to the idea. The Rebbe explains, of course, over the thousands of years since then, now the world is far more receptive. Whatever happened then was just the beginning. That pioneered the way, that paved the way. But today, after all the years of the billions of good deeds and mitzvahs done, and the the political and philosophical and psychological changes in the entire world, talking about the whole secular world, receptive to the very concept of bringing the divine within existence. As the Rambam writes about Christianity and Islam, that in God's mysterious ways, they help pave the way to Mashiach by bringing this message to the farthest corners of the earth, to the islands, he says there, and to other places that would, that would never have been reached. So the lesson is very clear to us, and, and Yusra's role in this as well. With that, let me go to some questions that were asked about this Pasha Yusra in this context. I should add one more thing before I continue. So it's interesting, Yisrael always comes following Yutzvat. Yutzvat is usually in Parsha Boy or B'Shalach, as it was last week. And Yisrael follows that, which is so central, of course, to the whole purpose. If you read Basilegani, the theme, the central theme, as we discussed last week, is exactly this, bringing godliness down to this earth, especially in the seventh generation. So the themes of Yisrael, Yisrael himself, leading to Matan Teda. And of course, as it plays itself out today, that when we take the world and the world itself acknowledges, whether it's through technology or through other means, through political thinking, the ideas of freedom, civil rights, all ideas that come from the Teda that all men are created equal, that all human beings are created in the divine image, and then building a Mishkan based on that, which of course follows in the coming chapters, this is the central theme of Yutzvat. So, with that, let's go to some of the questions that were asked regarding Yisrael. What were some of the innovative ideas that Yisrael introduced? And why did we need Yisrael? Couldn't Moshe and Aaron come up with good ideas on their own? So I answer the question partially without going into specifics. The first thing that Yisrael contributed that no one else could contribute was the Yisrael in It's similar to what the Gemara says about Avadja. The Gemara asks Avadja, the prophet, the greatest prophecies about Mashiach are in Avadja, even more than Yeshaya and Yemio and Yecheskel and other places. Avadja was a ger. So the Gemara asks, why Davka Avadja? So it says precisely because he was a ger. He came from Eden, from Esau. And the Gemara uses the classic example, to cut down the tree, you need the wood from the tree, which is the handle of the axe. 
You want to transform something? To really transform it, it can't be from a force outside of it. It has to come from within. Then it's truly acknowledged. That's what we call Ishapcha. Exodus talks about different levels of it. That even Ishapcha can also be from a force outside and ultimately transforms. Like the sweetening of waters. You can bring in sweet waters and it sweetens the bitter waters. But the greatest is when the bitter itself becomes sweet. is is an expression. Elaborated upon in the third volume of Ayin Beis at length. Ein Eid, he explains. When it comes from within the darkness itself, the distress itself leads you to the Helama Atzmi, to the deepest levels of the divine that's beyond revelation altogether. Interestingly, that piece, the Rebbe actually, even before we had Ayin Beis Chele Gimel, in a letter to Nissen, the Rebbe has a whole beard and it's printed in the Hisophis of Chele Gvav, volume 6. He quotes that piece from Ayin Beis. So the idea of transformation from within is exactly the story of Yisrael. And that's where Vadya Hager came from Edem, from Esau. That's the ultimate transformation. Same thing with Yisrael. So that's the general contribution that came from Yisrael. As far as his practical suggestions, we all know the suggestion in this week's chapter. When you see Mesha standing all day and night with thousands of Jews coming to him for advice, for counsel, for study, for whatever it is they needed, he suggested to Mesha delegation. Idea of delegating. In other words, delegate, create the hierarchy. People should go first to a scholar that is relatively closer to them. I have a lot of scholars like that. That if they can answer, then you go to someone on a higher level. A higher level, and all the way to Mesh if there was no one else. The obvious question is nobody could have come up with such an idea. Doesn't it make total sense? But remember, Moshe knew, Moshe Kibbal Teirah Messinai. He was chosen by God to be the one that received the Teirah and to give it to the people. So he felt on his own that he has to do this to the best of his ability. Since God did not command him to delegate, he didn't think he could. Even though I'm sure the common, the common sense logical idea came to him. But it was Yisrael that came to it, and that's when Hashem agrees. Again, Yisrael. Because Yisrael saw something that no one else saw. From the outside, so to speak, from the Cheshach, he's able to see that if you really want to permeate, if you really want to impact the people to the best, is delegate. Teach people to be teachers. The concept of Shalev Teach your student to be a teacher. To stand on his own feet. To rise on his own. And when it comes to him, Yisrael, he's coming from so-called from the world, it changes the whole picture. So that would be the innovation, the innovative idea. Were there other ideas that he came up with? I'm sure there are. But that, that's enough for our discussion here. Did the Rebbe ever say that his motivation for sending shluchim all over the world was based on Yisrael's advice to Moshe Rabbeinu to delegate responsibilities by training people to do a lot of the work so he could have more time to concentrate on the more important issues. Or someone else put it, did the Rebbe ever attribute the idea of sending shluchim all over the world to Yisrael's advice to Moshe to delegate? I don't recall the Rebbe saying it explicitly. Nambi may be wrong. He may have said it in the context of shlichus and the lesson that we learn from it. I'm just not recalling that, again, it means only simply, I mean, it doesn't mean that's not there. If anybody does remember such a sikha, 
or somewhere the Rebbe does refer to it, but it does make total sense. Uh, the difference is, in the case of Moshe, you're talking about Rabbonim, Sanhedrin, Bezdin, and so on. But the concept is similar, a type of decentralization. So though it's all based on the same Tehran, it's all coming from Moshe, who's receiving it from Hashem, but the idea of empowering people to not just be your assistant, but to actually advise, which the Mishnah says, and as the Rebbe emphasized, they made it a big thing, especially after Dvarim Tavshem and Vav, when the Rebbe talked, made a call about earlier, Yutas Kislev Tavshalam at Zion about Mashpim. And in general, Shluchim and Shliach, Isha Shliach, which is perpetual, similar to what we said before, one fruit making another fruit, is definitely the way when you have 8 billion people on this planet and you want to reach them all, you can't just have one person standing on a mountain and shining. It's empowering people to empower people to empower people. That ripple effect that, cre- that affects the critical mass and ultimately brings the goal. So I would say the connection is very direct, even though, as I said, I don't remember the Rebbe saying it in regard to shlichus. He definitely said it in regard to the lessons of delegation. Okay. What is, does it mean when it says we are mamleches kainim? So right before Matan there's a whole many, many verses, and one of them says, V'atam tili mamleches kainim v'gayi kodesh. Mamleches kainim literally means um, the uh, king, king of priests, kingdom of priests. So the question is, if we are a nation of priests, a nation of priests, does it mean we all have the status of koyen, of a priest, and can do, can do service on the, on the, on the base of Migdash, and do biches koyenim and give blessings? So obviously the answer is not. Koyenim serve in the base of Migdash, and Yisrael doesn't go there. So what does it mean, Mamleches koyenim? You could ask a similar question and have the same answer from the, the Rambam, the Sofil Chashmiti V'yevu, the classic Rambam the Rebbe often cites. Loi shevet levi bolvad ki'im kol yish v'ish meboi elom. Not just the tribe of Levi themselves are dedicated to serving God in the temple, but every person called by elom, as the Rebbe emphasized in the famous letter, Yudbeis Tama's letter. That means even non-Jews that separate themselves from the pettiness and the folly of this world and dedicate their lives to God. So how does a miskadish Kedish Kedoshim, he says. That person gets sanctified in the sanctification of Kedish Kedoshim. And he brings a verse in Pasha Kedach about Levi, saying that this applies to every person, not only every Jew. And indeed, the Gemara Taka says that Akum Shalom it's like a coin gold that goes into the Kedush Kedoshim. Holy of Holies. Rashi right away qualifies. What do you mean? It says that Akum was not supposed to learn Tayyar. He says, We're talking about Besheva Mitzvahs did who? In the seven Noahid laws, which is more than just seven small mitzvahs, as we discussed last week. It's a whole body, including God and all the other details of the Sheva Mitzvahs. So, how do we explain that? Does that mean. We could all go, actually go into the Holy of Holies and Yom Kippur. Obviously, it means spiritually. Spiritually, we all have that within us, just as we have a Moshe within us. We have the Kohen Gadol within us. We have the Yechidah Shabbanefesh and Yom Kippur that shines. And the Kedish Kedoshim represents the deepest, purest level. 
So before Matan Teda, he was saying, Atam Tili you shall be for me a nation of priests. Priests from the word serve, Lasharis, a coin that is a that serves God. And indeed by Matan Teda, that was the whole point, that the whole nation became servants of God. Why uses Kuhuna? Because the idea is that all of us should be like a coin. But then there's the actual distinction halachically between a Kohen Levi and Yisrael. That's the general picture of it. And, um, yeah. Is there a reason why when Hashem said the beginning of the Ten Commandments there was thunder, lightning, and smoke? It says we were so terrified many people ran five miles away from Harsinai. Wouldn't have been wouldn't it have been easier to understand the commandments and internalize them if it wasn't presented in such a frightening way? Well, so this was not a light and uh, sound show. It wasn't fireworks just to impress anybody. It's when a momentous event, and the most momentous event in history, takes place where the divine is making itself present in a revealed way on earth and transforming the world to the point that it gives it the power to forever be one and integrated with the divine. Remember before we said the bitla zeda of al-yenim and tachtenim. So this is not a small event. So it actually has direct impact on the physical world. Where does lightning, thunder, smoke, where does it all come from? So we know there are natural different factors that uh, phenomena, that, uh, that circumstances that bring lightning, thunder, and so on. But it really originates from the divine. That's why we make the blessings. The same thing, a blessing on the, the lightning. Why? Because it's really an expression of the divine presence. It's not made to frighten anyone. It's made to permeate. And when something happens of that momentous nature... It does shake, the very world shakes as a result. Even though at the same time the Gemara says that the world came to peace because now it fulfilled its condition for which it was created, for Matan Teda. But at the time, it shook the very fabric of existence. Just like it says, the world suddenly became quiet. Everybody sensed something is happening. As part of the world recognizing this type of event, had it just happened quietly, as if nothing, as we couldn't tell it in physical sense, with the physical senses, it could also achieve much. But that's the whole point of Matantei, is to actually affect the world in a very visible and a very tangible and palpable way. And that's what this was about. The fact that it frightened people, of course, when the divine becomes present, it frightens, but it was not meant for them to be frightened. Look, by the Matantei itself, it says, on every kol diba v'diba parcha nishmosam. Every one of the Ten Commandments, every one of the Aseris Adibris, their souls expired. And Hashem had to return it to them with Tal Tchia, with a special energy. Why? Because when you're getting a divine presence of that nature, that's what, exactly what happens. It shakes the very circuits. It's like a shock to the system. It's just like when you study something really powerful, it should shake you to the core. And then comes the process of integrating, of internalizing. And that's how it is. Whenever you have an experience of something that's super conscious from beyond, it's going to shake you and shake existence around you. And then comes the process of, as I said, the process of integration, internalizing. Indeed, by Yom Kippur, it says, because all this fanfare and all these fireworks did create an ayin hoda, 
because that's the downside that it can create. So Hashem said by Yom Kippur, this time let's do it quietly. But that was after there was the rash, Godel, by Matan Teda. So it was quiet. Moshe came down with the second tablets, more modest, more humble. Because sometimes you make a lot of noise, it could also attract negative energies, and it can also become something that needs to be taken care of. Just like it says in, the, in Halacha, that by, by Yom Tevim, when they would celebrate the Jews, Bezdin sent Shluchim to make sure that, that it didn't lead to any type of negative behavior. Because when people are happy and joyous and there's a lot going on, you have to also keep special, a special extra dose of humility. Okay. Continuing on. Interesting questions there. Thank you. You learn a lot when you read all this. So the next question is, are the Ten Commandments a minced translation of Aseris Hadibris? So let's read it. And, and uh, Dear Rabbi Jacob, and I have a few questions regarding the Aseris Hadibris, the Ten Commandments. The Chumash Talmud Chassidus all describes in great detail the importance of the national events of receiving the Aseris Hadibris at Mount Sinai, such as discussions of Nasev and Ishma, all Nesham Yisrael being there, etc. As well as there being Jewish philosophical and Kabbalistic discussions explaining how all the mitzvahs are included in the Ten Commandments. The Zohar also describes the correspondence between the Ten Sayings, Asar Ma'amaris, that is, that God used to create the world, by which the world was created, and the Asar Sadibris, and the Ten Dibris. Yeah. So, so, so I have a few questions regarding this. Regarding the Aseris Adibris, the Ten Commandments. The Hebrew, number one, the Hebrew term Aseris Adibris is most commonly translated into English as Ten Commandments. But it literally, but it is literally the Ten Sayings. Dibris, Dibris Dibur, from the word saying, speaking. Are both the Ten Commandments and Ten Sayings considered valid translations? Or are the words the Ten Commandments considered a mistranslation? It's a very good question. I've thought about it many, many times. I have seen the Rebbe use the Ten Commandments in letters including letters he wrote to the president about how this country is based on its principles. So clearly it's a legitimate translation if the Rebbe uses it, but commandments is more tzivuyim, or mitzvahs. The truth is that are commandments. But the word dibris, it's not always exact translation of the word dibris. But I've never seen this addressed anywhere in any way that makes sense. So I would say since it has used that way by the Rebbe, that both translations are legitimate. Um, if anybody has, again, more information on that, please let me know. And then, end of the day, English is always an inadequate language. Any language, any translation is never going to be perfect. And we say, I started my modus. How do we translate that? The ten statements. The ten, you know, my modus and dibres. What's the difference between them? We know Amira and Dibur is different. We learned that also in this week's Pasha. Rashi brings about that difference between speaking to the men and to the women. Lashon Raka, Lashon Kosha, sensitively, tenderly, or, or a little harsher. But or vigorous, maybe, is a better word than harsher. Okay, but if again, if anybody has anything, please let me know. Next question. Are the Ten Commandments universal laws for all people? So the same person asked that question. It seems to me that the default Western assumption 
is that the Ten Commandments are a universal moral law given to all of humanity. Can Judaism believe that the Ten Commandments were given to all people of the world, including the non-Jews, as universal commandments? Or is the world mistaken that the Ten Commandments were given only to the Jews? And the person also cites that last week you mentioned on your podcast, My Life Chassidah Supply, that the seven Noahid laws, seven Mrs. Benech, are essentially the same as eight out of the Ten Commandments, with the exception of the commandments for Shabbos for honoring one's parents. So that asks this question. Well, again, because the Rebbe uses Ten Commandments in the letters to presidents of the United States and other places, that, and that this is the basis of this country, so clearly does generally associate it with the Sheva Mrs. Bleineach, without saying as much. Even though, again, technically you don't have Kibodav there and Shabbos. And Shabbos is actually not for the nations of the world. But the principles of the Sheva Mrs. Bleineach are the same. So I would answer this in two ways. If you're talking about in general context and spirit of the Ten Commandments, absolutely. And especially if somebody uses it to become a better person, a moral person, they say, I'm basing it on the Ten Commandments. The Rambam does say that when the non-Jew accepts the Sheva Mitzvah, it should be because it was given at Mount Sinai. Where was it given at Mount Sinai? So you could say it's part of the Ten Commandments. You could say it's in general part of the Torah. So in that context, yes. If you want to get more technical, are the Sheva Mitzvahs exactly the set, the, the, the similar to the seven laws besides Shabbos and, and, uh, and Kibbutz in the commandments? I'm sure there are distinctions, and they're definitely different language. The Gemara Sanhedrin, when it enumerates the seven, the seven Noahid laws, doesn't necessarily enumerate it exactly the way it is in the Ten Commandments. So it all depends on whether, how much you're going into the details of it, but the spirit for sure. Which leads to the next question that this person asked. Should we be using the Ten Commandments themselves as a tool for publicizing the Noahide laws? And, and then, follow-up question to that. Well, let's first answer that question. The answer is that Rebbe does use it. He uses it in his letters again, Ten Commandments. So I don't see any issue with it, especially when you're focusing on the general spirit of the commandments. And that leads to the next question. If the Noahid laws are a derivation of the Ten Commandments, why shouldn't the Talmud mention this fact when discussing the source of the Torah for the Noahid laws? Indeed, in Sanhedrin doesn't use the Ten Commandments. It uses a verse in the, the beginning of Bereshis. It talks about Chet Eitz actually. The Eitz And it derives from each part of the verses, the seven Noahid laws. So that's a very good question. Maybe some commentaries speak about it. I would need to look it up further. It could be because we get back down to it, the the the, the, the Sadibris, whether let's take the first of the Sadibris. So in the Sheva Mitzvah, it's stated in a different context and also stated in the negative. You shall not have false god, Avedazara, idolatry. So it could be that the Gemara is being very precise in what the laws are, like I said, the second aspect. Not the spirit of the Ten Commandments, but the details. That would be my initial response. Thank you in advance for reviewing and discussing these questions. Thank you for all the teaching and inspiration you continuously provide. And may you be able to do so for many years to come. Amen. And thank you. Okay, next. As I said, again, excellent questions, and I thank you for that. And I'm hoping the, the listeners are also appreciating it. 
Next question. How are all 613 mitzvahs hinted to within the Ten Commandments? So this is actually a Rashi in Mishpatim. Chav Dalad Yud Beis, 2412. So he says, and, and the words, Ha'evan, so Rashi writes, Kol sheish meyas v'sholish esrei mitzvahs. All the 613 mitzvahs, Bechlal HaSeres HaDibris, are all included in the, in the Ten Commandments, or Seres HaDibris. Hein. V'rabbeinu sadya, pirish, ba'azorah, sheyosad l'chol dibr v'dibr mitzvah atluyiz bay. Rab sadya gone, who wrote azorahs, a certain type of like, almost a, uh, a poem, where he describes, and he actually says, actually says, he established the one that Zoras that he wrote. So he explains the mitzvahs that are dependent on each one of the Ten Commandments, and actually explains each mitzvah as it connects to one of the Ten Commandments. Now the general answer in Medrash Rabbah, and other places, in Bamidbar Rabbah, Parshir Gimel, there he says, that this that the Seres Adibris has made up of two six hundred and twenty letters, which correspond to the six hundred and thirteen mitzvahs, and the seven days of creation, because the whole creation was created only for Torah. So what do you see from this? That Seres Adibris includes Kolatera Kula, and you have to really look. So then every letter corresponds to one of the six hundred and thirteen mitzvahs, and Azoras Rasag elaborates more in detail. And the Rebbe would often repeat the word from the Friedeke Rebbe, that the whole Torah is, inc- is included in the Aseris HaDibris, Tayag Mitzvahs. Aseris HaDibris is included in the word Anoichi, in the word Anoichi, and the word Anoichi is in the Aleph of Anoichi. So when you learn Kometz Aleph with a child, it has an Kola Torah Kula. And the reason for it is very clear, because it's like Klaloprat, you have the general, which is the Ten Commandments, and that is a result that encompasses all of the mitzvahs. Similar to what the Alter Rebbe brings, that Avas Hashem, Yiris Hashem, is the Klal, Yisoyed, the Korah Mach Mitzvah says, all the 248 positive mitzvahs are included in Avas Hashem, and all the 365 negative mitzvahs are included in Yiris Hashem, reverence of God. Just a comparison. So the next question, following this one. Hi, Rabbi. Do you think that is a good proof for the authenticity of the oral Torah that there are 620 letters in the Ten Commandments corresponding to 600 scriptural and seven rabbinic commandments? Otherwise, a coincidence seems unlikely. So some places it does say the seven medrash, it says seven days of creation. Some places it says seven, seven uh, laws of uh, the, the, the Zion mitzvahs that are born on. I think in some places that says actually seven Noahide laws as well. Um, well, if you need a proof, uh, it is seemingly uh, an interesting one where you see that in the Ten Commandments in the 620 letters, you have everything included. Everything is there. But there are other places, you can also see this, where it says, where the Torah on the Rambam's words, that the pirush is necessary and it has to be included in the written Torah itself because you can't understand the written Torah without the oral Torah. But that's an interesting point. Okay. And one final question about the Aseris Hadibris. Why is covering a neighbor's property considered such a big sin that it made it into the Ten Commandments? 
Is it ever possible that coveting or being jealous of someone can lead to goal setting and personal growth? And if so, is it still a sin in that case? Kindness of from I'm adding. Kindness suffering means but among scholars, when there's competition, when there's a certain healthy envy, it actually spurs them on, motivates them. For example, if I'm jealous of my neighbor buying a new car instead of just giving him dirty looks, I use it as a catalyst to do, take some classes so I learn more skills and get a promotion at work with a raise so I can also afford a new car. Okay, but that depends how you use the car. Just to get a new car is not necessarily the key. The key is if it's kinesov from Tarbachachim and Kedusha, that learning from someone, being, and being motivated by them, and adds you to add and tear the mitzvahs and be closer to God, absolutely. That's not the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandment, the commandment, Leis Ahmed, is talking, the one about coveting, is talking about one of the worst qualities a person could have. Resentment, jealousy, envy, that leads to bad things. The coveting leads to wanting it, to having negative feelings to the person, and to ultimately even could be to theft and other things. So the Mephoshim, the commentaries, all talk about it. That even though coveting itself is not leisignif, that says earlier, depending how you interpret leisignif. But nevertheless, the coveting itself can end up becoming something that, you know, when you covet, it can lead to very negative things. Because then you want it, you desire it, and desire, when it's not tempered, when it's not properly harnessed, can be a force that has led to most many wars, personal conflicts, and so on. So it's something that Taylor is being very careful. Don't covet. Hashem blessed you with everything you need. You don't need to have what someone else has. Be happy with what you have. If you're talking about kinah suffering, that's not coveting. You're not coveting what that person has. You're using and saying, oh, that, wow. That inspires me to also go ahead and learn Taylor more, learn more, more, do mitzvahs, be a better person, be a better student. That's the difference. Okay, so with that, let us now move, moving right along. This is, this is connected to Matan Tate in general, but it's going to lead me to a bigger question that people have asked about God and different ways to connect to God. So let's do it this way. If Sinai enabled us to transform the mundane into holiness, why are some objects holier than others? Ashwa- Ashfur, as the rabbi in Ashul explained how, but before Matan there was a separation between the physical and spiritual planes. We discussed that before from Medish. And only after Matan do we have the power to reveal the godliness in a physical object, therefore rendering it holy after it is used for a mitzvah. Like we see, tefillin, mezuzah, sefer teda, a carbon. That once you sanctify it, it's forever sanctified. The physical object. Not just that it's a vehicle for spirituality and for godliness. My question is, why do some objects such as mezuzahs, fill and printed tater books, etc., retain a level of holiness and therefore must be treated with respect even after finishing using them for a mitzvah? Exactly. Tashmishe mitzvah. But other physical objects, such as a lulav, esrik, parts of a sukkah, etc., don't seem to retain holiness. And you can include also tzitzis and, and, and uh, talis and can be thrown in the garbage after use. Someone else wrote a different. How come some objects retain holiness after using them for a mitzvah just film, but other objects don't retain holiness? Yeah. Okay. 
So Chassidus itself talks about this in Shari Eira. The Rebbe actually has a footnote, I believe in Tavshin Tess, the Rebbe's notes, she brings it, that there's different ways and levels of how godliness and Kedusha permeates existence. And there's a reason for that. Remember, the purpose is to make a home for the divine in the lowest of worlds. As soon as you say that, that type of interface, you need to retain two things. It has to be divine, and it has to be tachtenim. It has to retain the quality of tachtenim means of our material existence. If, for example, the spiritual energy of the divine becomes so powerful that after years of work, the world gets eliminated or annihilated, that's not the kavana. The world was not created for destruction. That's why the Ramban, the Allah is like the Ramban, that Chis Mason will be souls inside bodies permanently. Because the goal is to permeate existence, to transform existence. But more than Besecham, also into the material parts of existence. So how do, you, how do we balance that? That's the biggest question of all. Seems antithetical. God is beyond the infinite, beyond immortal. And existence is all about, is mortal, limited, finite, creation. And that's why Chassidus talks at length about a Seder which is a long, elaborate, complex process of interfaces, plural. Because each level, think of a student, a beginner student, a little child, only knows Aleph. And yet you start teaching them and they grow and they expand their channels and they expand their containers and they begin to understand more to the point that 40 years later you can understand and even higher as Chassidus explains so initially we needed that symptom because without the symptom the divine light would completely blow all the circuits and not allow existence to be it ain't so before the symptom so the symptom conceals but then comes a narrow cav a thin line of consciousness like a laser beam spoon feeding the child spoon feeding existence now that you have an independent consciousness, now it can begin to assimilate and absorb and integrate godliness as we grow and develop from beginning from subjective little children, immature. Mutva, murgish, muskel, we grow from emotions, or we develop our emotions, our minds expand. And furthermore, our emotions elevate until ultimately everything elevates and we can then relate to and transcend our own subjectivity to connect our subjectivity with God's objectivity with a higher reality, and integrate the two. So you need constant integration. So Mashiach comes, it doesn't say the world will cease to be, God forbid. The earth will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. The waters cover the sea. The divine knowledge will be primary, and the sea will be secondary, but it will be covered, but it will exist. So in that context, that's why you have all the different levels. Just like we have Shabbos and Chayel. The Shabbos is where you have more divine, more holiness, and you still have material things. We eat, we drink, and other physical things that we do. In the weekday, the focus is more on the mundane, but you're sanctifying Chulun Altar HaSakadosh. Also, So there are mitzvahs, literal mitzvahs, that are God's commandments, that actually sanctify existence in different levels, as we'll speak about in a moment. And there are things that are divrei chayel, they remain chayl. They remain rishus. But they're done l'shem shemayim. Why? Why do you need all the levels? Because you want things that reflect mostly divine and just and a secondary the physical. Some things you want more physical, but it's completely permeated with the divine. 
So it depends on whose terms you're talking about. Some things are in divine terms and less physical. Some things are more physical and not less divine, but less revealed divine. And that's why in mitzvahs itself you have things that completely transform, like, like stam, sefetated film mezuzahs, that transform forever the object. Some things don't transform. Tashmish gedusha. And you could throw it out, which means while you used it, it was holy, but it's also part of existence. So tachtenim is preserved. This, is, this idea is explained in many different places, why sometimes you need the ur that's higher than the keli, sometimes you need the ur in the keli, sometimes you need the focuses on the keli, and the ur is so-called absorbed within the keli. And these are the different levels that we have. That's why you have Kedush and Kedush HaKadoshim, the Esser Kedush is saying, 10 levels of Kedush, and even when Mashiach comes, when all the world, it says, Eretz Yisrael will spread to the entire earth, and Yerushalayim will spread to all of Israel, and Yerushalayim itself will be more like the Beis Amidish, and the Beis Amidish will reach a higher level of Kedush. So it's a constant, it says, so you'll have a Shabbos within the Shabbos, the weekdays will elevate, but then Shabbos will elevate even more. So you'll have kulim yedu esi, it says, but the miktanim v'agdelim will also have structure, from small to large, from small to big. Even though kulim yedu esi, everyone will know esi, atzmus. So atzmus will permeate all of existence, but the, the, structure of, the structure of existence will not be eliminated, will not be annihilated, will be integrated. And structure includes some things that are shabbizdik, some things that are chayl, sometimes yomtev, chayl hamoyed. All examples of different levels of how much the Gdusha permeates, so you have both Tachtainim and you have both Diraleyes Barachim. Okay, so with that comes the next question. The next question is what does it mean to connect to God? I know that Chsidis teaches. When we do a mitzvah, we reveal an infinite connection with Hashem. But shouldn't we feel something special during this process? One time, I bought a ticket to a concert, and when the curtains opened and the band started playing, I felt a sense of joy and elation and a connection with the band and the other audience members sharing the experience together with me. But when I put on my film or do various other mitzvahs, I don't feel anything special. I still do the mitzvahs because I believe the Torah is true and that's what we are supposed to do. But if I could feel certain amazing feelings during a secular contest, concert, shouldn't I be feeling this connection to Hashem on an even stronger level by doing a mitzvah? Am I missing out on something or not doing it right? Thank you for your time, Rabbi. Well, very good question. I would make Allah Havdil between the two, obviously. But it reminds me of the story of Levi Yitzchak Badichever. When he turned to heaven, he said, You showed a trick, he says to God. You gave the people, physical world, that they should tangibly feel and experience and resonate with them with their five senses. And you wrote in the books, in holy books, about about the spiritual worlds and all its delights. Spiritual pleasure. But you gave them physical pleasure in something that they experienced without any effort. Why don't you try it out the other way around? Let them experience spiritual pleasure in a very palpable way. And write in the books about physical pleasures. And you'll see how they behave then. In other words, that's exactly how God created the world. An agnostic universe, he concealed his presence. We spoke before about the tzimtzum. 
He wanted tachtenim, and tachtenim, initially, we have to feel that the physical first. We wake up in the morning, we feel the physical. We feel myself, I feel physical hunger, thirst, tired, and so on. And it's only with effort that you say, moidani lefanecha, melechai v'kayim shechzat b'nishmasi b'chem l'rabba munasecha. That you return my soul. We need to work on that. In the language of Chassidus, the world is created that elamis is bepshitis. What's obvious to us is existence, physical existence, the pleasure of going to a concert, and all that comes with that, or other things. We're not talking about anything prohibited necessarily. And alakus is bishachus. Alakus is a novelty, needs work. We have to figure it out. We have to contemplate. Before the tzimtzum was the opposite. Alakus was bepshitis. The divine was the given. And only consciousness. And Elamis was not was a complete novelty. The story with the with the, with the Baal Shem Tev, that the Malochim after the day after Simchas Teda, they saw in Ganeid and they saw these soles and heels of shoes. They didn't know what it was. Until he told them this is from Dobra Mislan, this is from Vitebsk, this dancing of the Jews in Simchas Teda. Because for Malochim, the whole thing is a novelty. It's strange. That's Malochim, let alone Eden so before the Simchas. When Mashiach comes, through all our work, we're transforming with Matan Tater's power, existence, that we should be able to experience the Kuz B'pshitis again. So the example you give, M'psodiach Zalaka, is a good example. That Mitla Rebbe writes the beginning of Kuntur Sispailas, that his father's, Komag Mose, his whole desire and objective was that we should have pleasure in Ruchnias as much as we have pleasure in Gashmias. That indeed, to figure out how to learn and how to daven and how to put on film, as you described, that's why you need chassidus. And it should have the same pleasure and even more in bonding and connecting. But that you need to learn about your soul. What do you think you connected with in the concert? It was a soulful thing. Not necessarily holy, but soulful in the sense music. And there's a bonding. It's relatively easy in the material world. It's harder to do it with ruchnis, with alakus. But that's the objective. So it's not a complaint, I'm not, that's how we are, but that's exactly what you're describing is the challenge, and that's the whole point. Like in Tanya, we have a divine soul. It's actually the source of the deepest pleasure, however it's concealed in a body, in an animal soul. And what's easy to access is our animal soul. That's the way God made it. He made it that way. And those that want to make a mistake will make a mistake. We have to be wise and see through the cloak, see through the concealment, and recognize the whole purpose of it is to elicit from us that we should seek out divine pleasure and realize it's much more pleasure than anything in the material world. That's the answer. So with that, let us go to one more question, which is a topic I've been getting many questions about, and I said, let me, let's, let's begin addressing it. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, my question is regarding the use of ketamine and psilocybin for treating trauma, depression, and anxiety. Is this treatment allowed? Does Tehnechsidus provide insight? And this, of course, includes other forms of psychedelic experiences that lately have going around, whether it's ayahuasca and so on. So let me begin firstly reading a letter from the Rebbe. There's a letter dated the 20th of Cheshvan, Mar Cheshvan, 5725, Tavshin Chavhei, 
That would be probably the end of like November 1964. So someone writes to the Rebbe, I'm just reading word for word. I'm in receipt of your letter which you write in the name of your friends and in your own behalf. This is the Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's where this person was. And asked my opinion regarding the new drug called LSD, which is said to have the property of mental stimulation, etc. Biochemistry is not my field, and I cannot express an opinion on the drug you mentioned, especially as it is still new. However, what I can say is that the claim that the said drug can stimulate mystical insight, etc., is not the proper way to attain mystical inspiration, even if it had such a property. The Jewish way is to go from strength to strength, not by means of drugs and other artificial stimulants, which have a place only if it is necessary for the physical health, in accordance with the mitzvah to take care of one's health. I hope that everyone will agree that before any drugs are taken, one should first utilize all one's natural capacities, and when this is done truly and fully, I do not think there will be a need to look for artificial stimulants. I trust that you and your group, in view of your yeshiva background, have regular appointed times for the study of Torah and the inner aspects of Torah, namely the teaching of Chassidus, and that such study is in accordance with the principles of our sages, principle of our sages, namely the essential thing is the deed, i.e. the actual conduct of the daily life in accordance with Torah, mitzvahs, prayer, tefillin, kashras, etc. This is only a matter of will and determination, for nothing stands in the way of the will. I trust that you are also using your good influence throughout your environment. With blessing and the Rebbe's signature. Okay. So, of course, the question here is not about spiritual, uh, what do you call it, mystical um, insight or mystical experiences or altered states of consciousness. It's about health. The, the questioner here asked the question about health. Namely, things dealing with trauma, depression, anxiety, and so on. So like it is with all matters of medicine, all matters of medical matters, the Torah gave permission for the doctor to heal. Now, the question is, who's a doctor? You find a legitimate doctor that's accepted by other doctors, and then medicines, whether they're natural or they are chemical or they are man-made, synthetic, if indeed the doctor feels, because it's been proven to work, and even it's not always been proven, but something, a situation demands stronger intervention, then with that type of guidance, then it fits into that category. And I do know that many of the different attempts today are medicinal in nature and are looking to help heal. The question is whether it's being abused, whether it's being overused, whether it's being done by the right practitioners. And above all, like it's called today, integration. It's not just experience that these chemicals or that these um, medicines, I should say medicines, or herbs or natural uh, items, it's not just the experience and what happens afterwards. How is it integrated into your life? And that's the challenge. So I'm not here to rule both halachically or medically, not an expert in that field, but these are the guidelines, these are the parameters. So in that context, if it could be of use to case by case, by all means, it should be explored. But it should always be done with the guidance of a mature authority, not done in a childish way and not done as a novelty or something exotic or something new, let's try it out. And definitely not something recreational or that leads to other things. Like you said, the Rebbe writes, it is not about finding God. It's not about a mystical experience. Even though I do know people that tell me that through psychedelic experiences, they did 
discover God, and they did not have a God before that in their conscious lives. And they become observant Jews. And many have told me that they no longer use any of that. They don't need it. Now they found the way, like the Rebbe writes, from strength to strength, through Torah and Mitzvahs. Especially when you learn Chassidus, Chassidus brings you to that state. It talks about these higher superconscious states. I actually gave a class last week, first of several parts, called The Birth of Consciousness. Six steps from the quantum superconscious to the conscious. If you look it up at meaningfullife.com, you can find more about it. But we're talking in the context of healing. Now, we all know there's a certain overlap between healing and spiritual experiences, and that needs to be addressed more in detail. So I intend to speak about it some more. I'm sure I'm going to get feedback and thoughts, but that's the initial process here, especially coming from Martin Tater, when there was an experience of synesthesia, where they saw the sounds and they heard the sights. So the crossover of sight and sound, so it was definitely a superconscious experience, suprasensory experience, I should say. So it's a very good time to discuss ways of finding God. And above all, the key is that you could find God the highest levels of it. And that also could bring healing through chassidus and reaching those deepest levels and finding them within ourselves. But at the same time, as I said, when it comes to medical areas, the and therefore applies what I said before about that very topic. Okay. Due to limits in time, I wish I could have gone on. I had more to say, more things to talk about. Some follow-ups. But what I'll do is leave that for the next class. So with that, we shall sign off. This has been My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 436. Everyone have a chamish Grow and blossom, bear fruit, perpetuate, affect everyone around you with the light of the divine permeated within the material existence using the blueprint of Torah and the connections of the mitzvahs. Be well and call to every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Chassidus Applied. Thank you. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.